and welcome to the history of China. Episode 191, Superpower Interrupted, an interview with Michael Schumann. Podcasting, at least history podcasting, can often be a pretty solo and even lonely endeavor. Now, that of course is not always the case. There's plenty of great shows out there with multiple hosts, but not mine. And I've got no problem with that at all. But eh, maybe chalk it up to months and months and months and months of isolation. And even I get rather jumpy at the chance of talking directly to someone, especially about something as niche and nerdy as Chinese history. And so, as luck would have it, who should reach out but author Michael Schumann, author and journalist at large, who's based out of Beijing. It turned out that he was in the process of publishing just such a book, and wondered if I'd be interested in getting an advanced copy and then telling him what I thought of it. And so, after burning through the pages, I was only too happy to invite him on to discuss all things China, from its ancient past, to what's best to eat today, and what the future might have in store. Standard disclaimer, you'll no doubt quickly hear that this is conducted via Zoom, and it has all the audio quality and little lags and drags that we've all just come to expect in such things. Nevertheless, it was a great conversation that I most certainly enjoyed, and I hope you will too. Without further ado, my conversation with author Michael Schumann. So today we are joined by author Michael Schumann, who is in the process and just about to release his new book, Superpower Interrupted, The Chinese History of the World, which will be coming out in June of this year. Hi, Michael. Welcome. Hey, thanks so much for inviting me on. My pleasure. So for my listeners who maybe haven't uh, experienced your work yet, why don't you start off by introducing yourself a little more and some of the things you've done? Okay, thanks. This book is actually my third book. Uh, I've done two other books on Asia. One is called uh, The Miracle, the Epic Story of Asia's Quest for Wealth, and and that's uh, kind of a a history of uh, Asia's big economic boom over the last 50 years. Uh, And then I I wrote a book called Confucius and the World He Created, which is kind of a a history of Confucius's uh, influence on the world. But uh, in my real life, I'm a journalist. I've been I've been a journalist since 1992, and I've been a foreign correspondent in Asia since 1996. Uh, I worked for the Wall Street Journal and Time Magazine as a correspondent. Uh, now I'm I'm freelance. I I contribute to the Atlantic, and uh, I'm a Bloomberg opinion columnist, among other things. That's quite a resume, and you definitely well, well, thank you. Out in terms of living in Asia. You said 1996 is how long you've been here. I've been in Asia since 1996 in various cities. And I learned yesterday that right now you're in Beijing. Is that right? I'm in Beijing right now. That's right. Yes. Yeah. I'd I'd made a mistake. I thought you were in uh, New York because that's where your publishing company sent me the copy of your book from. And so I was scheduling as though um, we were going to be on 12-hour time differences. And so I I felt pretty silly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it's not a bad it's not a bad guess. I'm actually from the New York area. I grew up in New Jersey, and I lived in New York for a while as well. So it's it was a, it was actually a pretty good guess. <laughs> okay, well, pure luck on my part. Um, <laughs> so since you're up in Beijing right now, and since we live in such strange times, I guess I'll first ask you um, how's how's life going for you up in the North Capital. Things are actually uh, returning to to kind of normal. Uh, I wouldn't say 100% because there's still all these controls in place. But it's it's actually almost becoming too normal too quickly that 
Mm. I, I don't know how you feel, but after really not being in crowds, of course, in China, you're used to being in crowds, right, yeah. all the time. But after kind of not being in crowds since early January, being back in very crowded spaces in a, in a coffee shop where people are, are hanging all over you and this kind of thing, it's, it's actually it's slightly unnerving. In some ways, it's more stressful than it was when everybody was was locked down and you were kind of, you, you almost feel that you're in some, a bit of more, a bit more risk maybe with now that everyone's being you know, packed together again. Oh, I very much agree. It's, it's quite the same uh, here in Shanghai. It's that, that feeling of kind of being sardine compacted all together again, but everybody's still wearing masks and it's still very visible that there are checkpoints and temperatures yeah. and all that stuff. So it's, it doesn't feel yeah. safe, but you have to go back to pretending like it is. Yeah. I figured it would be much the same in Beijing. So 20 plus years in Asia, what got you interested in Asia and I guess more specifically China in general? And like, how did your life kind of come to intersect with that in such a way? It's, it's funny. I actually kind of fell into it somewhat academically. I have, a, I always have a lot of interest in history going back to high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like most high schools, I, I went to a pretty good high school, but you know, you have a very limited range of, of, of options studying history in high school, which in my high school was mainly you had a choice of American history and American history. Uh, so when, when I got to university, you could take classes on anything that you would really want. I started basically dabbling in Indian Chinese history, other parts of the world, and just kind of became hooked. And that's, that's how it actually started very academically. Um, and later, it kind of merged with an interest in economics and especially economic development. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's what brought me out to Asia to write. Because if you want to, if you want to learn about how poor countries can become wealthy, then Asia is the place to be. So I've been writing mainly about economics uh, in, in Asia for the time I've, I've been here. Uh, and uh, China was itself was a bit of a late addition in, in my interest originally came to China with Time Magazine and had been in and out of the country quite a bit before I moved here permanently in 2011. And, you know, the more I was here, the more interested I became. And, and you know, the, the more the interest around the world has grown in, in China and everything about China. So uh, I just became more and more involved in, in, in China studies and wanted to write more and more and learn more and more about it. Yeah, the, the economic point there that you kind of get sucked into being fascinated by that, I relate to that a lot as well. Um, I started this show pretty much as just sort of a political history, but especially as I got into some of the middle imperial dynasties, like the, the Song, for instance, it became more and more fascinating just how the, the economic structures of the empire developed over time. So I, I definitely can relate to um, approaching it academically and then getting much more interested in the, the economic underpinnings as well. Well, you you make actually a really good point uh, about that because we being from the U.S., it's we we tend to think like generally everybody in the West that you know somehow the global economy started with us. You know that it was kind of built started by the Portuguese and and the British and these kind of global these East West trading links. But as you said, when you look back before that happened you find that there was already something of an international system, especially by the days of the, of the song, as you mentioned. And China was always one of the main drivers of growth and trade in the global economy. I mean, going back to the old Silk Road days, 
Oh, yeah. Uh, so there's this whole other economic history of the world that a lot of people really don't know that China has had always played a really big part in. And when you even think about like where trade and how trade has developed and why true global trade has developed how it has. Again, China was really at the center of that. People came all from all over the place because they wanted what China was making, whether it was silk, silk and porcelain and tea, whatever it was. So, you know, China was instrumental in kind of creating the global trade and the global economy as it is. And I think it's a very un- unknown, unappreciated story, how advanced China was economically and in industry for a very long time. Absolutely. In fact, I'm, I'm thinking back now, um, and I believe you mentioned it, I think it was chapter maybe four when it came up. I know it was the Han Dynasty, the usurper emperor who interrupts the Han Dynasty, Wang Mong. And one of my favorite uh, stories to tell about him to people who don't know how influential China was even back in the, you know, the first century AD is that this, this emperor who reigns for 20 years manages to hoard so much gold that it almost bankrupts the Roman Empire of Augustus at the time. Uh, and so it, the, the, the effects of this one economy have is not just now that it's come to be this global dominant force. And this is one of the central premises of your book, but it almost right. has been. Well, there, you know, a little later on, there's some estimates that three-fourths of all the silver that the Spanish found yeah. in their colonies in America eventually ended up in China <laughs> because the Europeans were using silver to buy the porcelain tea and other things that they, that they wanted for, from China. And the Chinese weren't interested in, in a whole lot in other kinds of trade goods except for silver. So from all the silver that was dug up in the Americas and made Spain and rich uh, and flooded all through Europe, eventually somehow found its, found its way to China where it generally stayed. So China has, has a long history of vacuuming up wealth from the West. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> with, with mixed results as well. I mean, it, it has a tendency to debase its own currency from time to time as a result as well, doesn't it? So on that similar note, then, one of the things I liked when reading your book is that it's information dense. Like, I can't think of too much that I've covered in my show that you didn't cover in some fashion in your book. And yet you made it really accessible and really easy to read. I was able to, yeah, I was able to get through it very quickly and there was no, it wasn't a a chore at all, which sometimes very dense academic books can be, uh, you know, especially on a subject that is as information target rich as, you know, the history of China or, or of Asia. So I guess you'd be a pretty good person to ask then. Now, again, I don't think that the people who already listen to my show necessarily need to be hard soul on the idea of China is interesting. But in a broader sense, what makes China worth not only writing about on, on your or my case, but also for somebody who walks into a bookstore and through the nonfiction section and sees a book like yours, what makes it worth them picking it up? Why should we care? Well, I think when you look at the world around us, what's going on right now, uh, you, you know, it's, it's pretty easy to answer your question, which is, you know, look at the impact China has on the world. Whether you believe that China is responsible for the pandemic or not, uh, it's, China obviously played a huge role in what's happening in everybody's lives right now. And that's just going to be more and more true as China grows in, in, in power and influence. It's a, China's already affected 
the U.S. economy in very fundamental ways and in where we work and what we buy in the future. China is going to influence, you know, what technology the world is, is using. It'll, it'll influence the balance of power between, you know, East and West. There's some writers think that, you know, of course, the U.S. is heading towards some kind of superpower confrontation with China, which is very much going to redirect the history of the United States as well. Mm -hmm. And because China is playing such a, a, a tremendous role in the world, you know, I think the more that we know about China, the better off that we'll be in the United States in, in dealing with the rising China, what it means for the world. And, you know, that's what really got me onto this book. I think we tend to, just by nature, right, we, we tend to kind of see history through our, through our own prism, through who we are, uh, what our background is, what we studied in school, what stories our parents tell us, you know, this kind of thing that we have. So we have a view of the world that's very much based on, on ourselves. And when you think about it, there's, there's other societies, China just being one of them, that has a very different history and a bit different background, and people learn different things and, and see the world through a different prism. Uh, it's no one prism is more right or wrong. It's just, you know, a matter of, of, of perception and, and perspective. Um, and that's really what got me onto, onto writing a book like this. There's an entire kind of Chinese narrative of what's happened in the world and what it means that shapes to, to a great degree how the Chinese see the world today. Uh, and the more that we know about that, I think, you know, it, it can it can help us all figure out what's going to happen in the future. Absolutely. I mean, whether whether one sees or uh, anticipates China being a, a friend or a partner or a, a rival, it is incredibly obvious and important in this day and age to realize that it's going to impact uh, virtually every other corner of the world as it already is. And so better better to understand it no matter what one might think of it. Well, I, I mean, I, I also find, and I think it's, again, I think it's, you know, it's totally natural. I mean, we tend to put the story of China into our, the, our own history of the West. You know, what I find when I'm, I'm talking to people about this book and Chinese history, a lot of people really started learning about China from, you know, starting from like the Opium Wars, right? So you're talking about the, the mid-19th century, which really in China, Chinese history is not very long ago. Uh, and that's that's very often where where readers in the West kind of pick up their their China history. But you know, there's there's a, you know 2,500 years of history before that that was already kind of affecting the world. You know, and that that goes to a great degree. And unless you're really interested uh, and you want to know you want to know more and you seek it out, you're academically interested. There's this whole other history of China that most people don't really know. And, you know, as you're dealing with one of the world's great civilizations and, and what's becoming one of the world's great powers, and, and I, th I think the only way to really get a handle on what that and what that means is, is to know more about where China's coming from. Yeah, you, you bring up uh, where, mo where a lot of at least baseline Western sort of idea or understanding of China tends to come in, which is the mid-1800s and the Opium Wars. And to Europeans and to Westerners in general, that's kind of the, the high tide of their, their civilizational oomph. And yet for, for China, and you bring this up repeatedly throughout, that's, that's not only one of its darkest periods of time. It's known uh, even today as the century of humiliation. But it's also just a kind of a few off pages 
in the the sum total of its of its sort of a history book. It's it really is an outlier, and yet in the Western sense, far too often, even today, that's taken to be seen as the normal or or where China is quote unquote supposed to exist in the world order. But you point out very well that that is historically just a, a weird off blip, and not at all what the norm has been. Right. I mean, the, the Western perception of China has always been of this, what the West was considering a backward society, right? And a, a place that was poor, that had all these weird old ideas. And, and, you know, everyone knew that, oh, China had this great, opulent, powerful history. But, you know, within the Western experience, we've been dealing with a different, well, we think we've been dealing with a different China. It's really not even true in the Western experience, because until the Opium War, the Chinese empires, you know, the Ming and, and the Qing had really had the upper hand on uh, on the Europeans. If you want to go back and read of their the early exchanges with the Portuguese and the Dutch, and and you know the first kind of European seafarers that made it out there, the the Chinese were definitely in the driver's seat in, in these relationships for for uh, you know a good three hundred years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and but of course. Before that, there were many periods of Chinese history where China was a very, very dominant force, you know, in East Asia and beyond. Uh, but that's that's not our, that's not the Western experience, and that's 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 given us what's really an incorrect idea about what China is about. I mean, that doesn't mean that China was always always kind of a, a super strong militarily superior state, as you know. There were periods I, I've seen you been doing a lot of Mongol history recently, so. <laughs> Yes. You know, there there were there were other periods where uh, the Chinese didn't really fare so well. Uh, but you know, what's amazing about Chinese history is how often they were able to rebuild their power. Uh, that's that's what I find fascinating. Uh, that yeah, they had their their periods of disunion. In some cases, quite long periods. They had their civil wars. They had their foreign invasions. I mean, of course. That's going to happen over thousands of years. But then when they had their opportunity, they were able to basically rebuild their power again. And, you know, you can, you can kind of make the case that you're seeing that again today. Of course, you know, it's not an imperial dynasty and we don't have an emperor. Uh, but, you know, when you see what's going on and the way China is rebuilding its economic influence, its political influence, and, and you read about the old dynasty, you say, hey, this is like, you know, deja vu, basically. Yeah, we don't have an emperor. We just have a, a president for life. Totally different. <laughs> um, on on that on that, I mean, you, you're teeing me up great for for my next um, question here. But I mean, you even start your book out with the the line, that classic opening line from the Romance of the Three Kingdoms, which is the empire long divided must unite, and when long united, it shall surely divide. And I think that that became so iconic because it is so very descriptive of the long-scale, long-epochal cycles that we see in Chinese history when we take kind of, we pan back and take that longer view. Um, I'm curious what you have come up with or theorized or what you want to voice here as to why that might be so much of a, a central aspect to the, the story of this region of the world. Whereas in some place like Europe, when the Western Roman Empire sort of fell apart, Although there were still ideations of it for centuries and even thousands of years after the fact, it never really quite put itself back together again. Why, why was it a right. more driving force in China, do you think? 
That's a really good question because you could you could see if you go back to like for example the Warring States period, right? You could very easily make a case that if you were if you were living in the Warring States period, you could have foreseen China developing the way Europe did, where you had you know a bunch of independent states that kind of shared certain cultural aspects and history. Yeah. But ended up to a great degree going their own way and competing, but it didn't happen. And uh, even in other periods when China broke apart and you had multiple dynasties, somehow they all came back together. And it's a really interesting phenomenon. And I mean, the best answer I can have for it is actually the it gets into the power of ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, that the idea that China was better off as unified, formed uh, very, very early in Chinese political philosophy. And some of that was an outgrowth of the warring states, right? I mean, a lot of a lot of Chinese greatest philosophers were writing at that time. And they were looking around them and obviously, were, you know, kind of like, you know, we have to put an end to this devastation. And they started believing that the only solution was unity. That's what Mencius thought, right? Stability yes. is in unity. Uh, and then when you actually had the first empire, kind of unified empire form on, under the chin, and that idea kind of held that this is the, this is the ideal way that China should be. And it, that kind of sunk into the brains of the political elite. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's why whenever China, you know, the dynasties weakened and, and fell or where country was invaded, the political elite had in their mind, well, we have to put the pieces back together again. That's that's how China becomes strong. And they weren't, of course, wrong either, right? When they did put the pieces back together again, you ended up with you know another one of these great, powerful, wealthy, innovative dynasties. That's the best idea that I have put together on it, that it's actually rooted in kind of China's philosophy and view of its own history. Yeah, that's that's a I think that's a very good answer. It's it's always been fascinating to me that it was the Tin Dynasty that managed to uh, sort of calcify and and crystallize that idea of unity under a son of heaven in the imperial sense. Because when you actually stop and you, and you look at the Tin Dynasty for all of its pomp and splendor, it lasted I think what less than fifteen years, if I'm remembering right. Yeah, it lasted fifteen years. Yes, you're right. It's yeah. just it's incredible. They did a tremendous what? amount in 15 years. Oh yeah, right? because they built the original. They built the original Great Wall. They completely reorganized the empire, where it became you know the, it's the Chin that sort of this idea of a cent, of a centralized empire with provinces. Uh, they called them something else, but you mm-hmm. basically had provincial governments. So they created a national bureaucracy. They standardized lots of things from you know the Chinese that was the Chinese script was standardized under under the tin as well as you know currency and weights and measures all that stuff was standardized to try to make it into one empire and I mean there's some thinking that the Qin built a more extensive road system than Rome in that road, road, you know in that period so it's it's a pretty amazing 15 years but yeah we would it was just 15 years but to a certain extent, it created the model. I mean, when you when you look look at this government today, you know, as you said, we we don't have an emperor; we have a president for life. But okay, but the what what is this government? This is still a uh, centralized state that governs where power flows out from the center through a series of provincial governments that and a civil service that it controls. In in the certain respects, 
you know, and, and actually when you look at some of the pomp and ceremony that the communist government does, things in many ways don't look all that different uh, <laughs> from from a basic political standpoint from what the Qin Dynasty did back in the third uh, century BC. Yeah, I loved, um, I'm going to pull a particular quote that I uh, earmarked here that I love that you brought up in the beginning of your book. You said, you know, one Chinese proverb heaven is high and the emperor is far away is as true today as it ever was. And I mean, that's, it's kind of the perfect statement that describes China even today. The centralized, seemingly overpowering force, but it's almost always so far away that the local bureaucrats are able to do more or less whatever they want, unless they get particularly unlucky. The more things change, the more things stay the same. Yes. So I know. I mean, that's why when when it, when you read when you read about China already back in those that ancient period, and you live here and you see what goes on, you're like, okay, yeah, this is this was this was two thousand years ago, but uh, it it feels like I'm reading something about today. Yeah, and I, for myself at least, um, definitely for the first period of time that I, I lived here, a lot of the a lot of things that frustrated me the most about the way that the system operates and the the seemingly endemic, either just malaise or corruption on the part of a lot of officials, it just seemed intolerable. Like how could you as a society tolerate this sort of thing until you realize, oh no, 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 no. That's normal. They're that's what they've been doing for a few millennia now. This is like how it's supposed to work. <laughs> and then it all kind of makes more sense. You know, it, it's interesting how this civilization has been around a very long time, and obviously it's changed dramatically, you know, o- over the years. And in many ways, especially recently, because as you know, the, for the last, you know, 100 years, 125 years, this country has been kind of in war with its own history, right? I mean, oh, yeah. Chinese reformers, whether they were communist or other, began to believe that this history that we're talking about was China's problem. And if they wanted to be a modern state in the modern world, they had to basically adopt ideas from the outside between the Western ideas. I mean, where, where does communism come from? Right. Uh, right. So you've gone through, and, and of course, and you know, during the cultural revolution and you know, especially, but, but you had these quite aggressive attacks on Chinese tradition. That was the four old, right? So, you, know, you had red guards going around, you know, destroying Confucian and, and Buddhist temples. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, despite you know all, all of all of that in recent times, you know, you can it it is remarkable how how much influence history has on the way the way things happen, and uh, both domestically and also how China sees the world and and what China kind of I think wants going forward in the world. I guess, you know, we're all somehow products of our own history that we can't kind of, we don't even realize how influenced we are about how our societies have developed in the past. Yeah, that's very true. It reminds me of that old um, great Mark Twain quote, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes. (laughs) (laughs) I, but you know, you, you could say if Mark, if Mark Twain had, had studied uh, more Chinese history, he, he may, may not have said that. I mean, Chinese history can be, as, as we were talking about earlier, amazingly repetitive. Yes, um, <laughs> I mean, not that all the dynasties, of course, were the same by any means, but they were remarkably alike There's over a lot of an amazingly long yeah. period of time in their institutions and in their ideology. And, of course, in their own, when they talked about themselves, 
they were always the successor to the old dynasties, right? So they used to refer to, you know, the the Tang saw itself as the recreation of the Han, right? And the Ming would see itself as the recreation of the Han and the Tang. And, you know, this was kind of, they wanted to recreate the past on, on a certain level. Uh, and, and, of course, you know, things change with time. But the basics of the imperial system that formed in the Qin and then really under the Han, because it's when the Han figured out how to use ideology and how to use administration to actually run the run an empire the size of the Chinese empire. You know, that that basically, it's basically stuck as kind of the, the main form of government and the main source of governing principles. Basically, you, you can make a case up into the modern day, even with all the change that's gone on. Yeah. And I think, I think that that is something that is often difficult, I think, especially for modern Western minds to really quite grasp or fully comprehend. In the, you know, in the post-Enlightenment West, it's all very linear and forward-looking and improvement is possible by breaking off from the shackles of the past. But again, as you say, in some, in some ways, at least, even today, once Mao died and the Cultural Revolution ended, at least, there still is that that sort of backward-looking philosophy of looking to the past for solutions in the present, and I think a lot of a lot of times that can sound like negative or derisive, and I don't I don't mean it to be. I know you don't mean it to be either, because I mean it's it's worked uh, for more, more more often than it hasn't worked. There's a lot to be gained there, trying to take lessons from the solutions of the people who came before. Well, you know that's a big part. Of Confucian political thought. I mean, if you read the Analects, you'll see he's, mm-hmm. he's constantly referring to earlier periods of history. He was already at an earlier early period of history. Yes, <laughs> right. Being that he was born in the in, in the sixth century BC, but you know he was all he was referring to basically stories of of sage kings and, mm-hmm. and earlier earlier rulers that you know were already. Even the the historical rulers that he was talking about were already around 500, 600 years before him. When you look at the Duke of Zhou and the, these people, mm-hmm. so it you know, and that was his message. His message was, well, these guys got it right. So if you want to figure out how to do things, they're the model, and that's kind of built into Confucian political thinking. That of course was highly influential on what what was going on at imperial courts for the entire dynastic period. So. There's a tradition of looking back to history, very, 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 very early history, as a way of kind of guiding what you're going to do today and in the future. Yeah, if, if you believe that your earlier dynasties were descended from literal gods and demigods and sage kings, I mean, you're not going to do better than that, so you might as well try to emulate them. No, right. That's true. I mean, the earlier dynasties, that's exactly right. But but even the, you know, even the historical dynasties, when, you know, look, when you look at the Duke of Zhou and King Wu, King Wen, mm-hmm. uh, these 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 guys in, in that, that period, they're considered to be ideal rulers, right? That everybody else should model themselves on. And th- these are people that were living in the, you know, 11th century BC. So, you know, that's when you get into this these remarkable acts, the aspects of Chinese history about not just how far it goes back, but uh, how how uh, educated and literate the society was so far back that you have written stories of these people, even if they're true, and you, you have documentary records from almost that, that early period that your later historians and philosophers were reading and relying on. 
Yeah. And so kind of on that same general idea of looking to the past to try to inform the present and how that can be a good idea. Once again, like I said before, you know, one of the central premises of your book is that more often than it's not been, China has been this regional hegemonic power over much of East Asia. And it seems pretty, pretty inevitable, I would, I would say, that it's in the process well on its way to resuming that role in the 21st century. So what lessons, maybe in a Confucian looking back towards the past way, could even the West potentially draw in order to better meet that challenge? And in the same respect, is it necessarily negative or is there some kind of potential silver lining to that sea change? Well, I mean, I think I think as China as China rises on the world stage, I think it would be it would be helpful if people in Washington and London and Tokyo kind of look at it through that Chinese prism that I was was talking about earlier, where right now in in the U.S., China is a threat, right? Yeah, uh, a threat to the U.S., a threat to U.S. national security, a threat to the the global order that. Uh, the U.S. and Europe has, has put together, and they, I'm not saying that's not true. That could that could very well be true. Mm-hmm. When you when you flip the prism over and and you see you see this from China's perspective, you know they're really just restoring what they consider to be the norm. They believe and have believed in their own self perception and their own political ideology that. Basically, they deserve to be among the great powers of the world. That, to a certain extent, it's their right. They have a sense of exceptionalism that's, you know, different, obviously, in its in its substance, but similar to this idea that the U, that the U.S. has of this, you know, city city upon a hill, right? Mm-hmm. That the U.S. is going to be a guiding light that's going to change the world. But that's how the Chinese actually have historically seen their own civilization, and they believe themselves to be a superior civilization, and therefore. They, to a certain extent, had a rightful place at the top of the world. So when you when you see things from that Chinese perspective, from the way that they look at this, is that we we deserve to be here, right? We deserve to be among the great powers, and you can feel that that's threatening, perhaps. And you know, honestly, the rhetoric out of this government doesn't do a particularly good job of <laughs> of calming people's nerves, but. The way the Chinese see it is that this is this is basically how things should be. Your experience with us is an aberration. I think if I think if we in, in the West kind of understood more about this, the way the Chinese think of their own role in themselves and where they belong in the world, and where they feel they've always always been in the world, then what they do and how they act and what they want is suddenly you know it makes a lot more sense. I mean, I what one thing that I you know we always ask ourselves, what does China want, right? That's what people in the West have been asking this for, you know, 40, 50 years. What, what does China want? And to a certain extent, it's, the answer is relatively simple. It's what China always had or what the Chinese think they always had. Yeah. A little respect as I pull on my necktie. Get no respect. <laughs> it's, I, but, you know, the problem with perception you know, perception is reality to a certain extent, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that it, you know it's it's always perfectly true. I mean, the other thing that you're dealing with is is a China, especially under this government, that's done quite a bit of rewriting of its own history <laughs> yes. uh, in ways that influence the, what people think that may not actually be true. Um, 
you know, I get tons of tweets pro-China people insisting that China has always been a peaceful power, which we know is, <laughs> is simply not true. Yes. Uh, the the China, Chinese were at war with just about everybody you could be at war with over their history. So, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's a lot of misperceptions. And the danger I had in writing my book and the real one of the real problems I had to deal with was, you know, I didn't want to write a Communist Party history of the world. Right. Um, I didn't want to write a book of, oh, this is, this is how mainland Chinese today see their history, because to a certain extent, it's not that that's not important. That's important in, in, in of itself, uh, because it influences how, how people react to the world around them today. But uh, I, I didn't really want to do, you know, a Chinese Communist Party propaganda book about what they think their, their history is. <laughs> Uh, which was a bit of a tricky element in, in writing those perceptions of, of history change over time. But this idea about Chinese exceptionalism is something that when you look at writers going back to the, the earliest period that we have writing, so looking at, at spring and autumn and, and the warring states periods writing, uh, you already had the Chinese thinking of themselves in, in this way as a superior civilization. And that's an idea that, that basically really never went away, despite all the, as we were talking about, all the ebbs, ebb and flow and ins and outs of, of, of history. Absolutely. No, I, when I was, first was uh, beginning to read, I, I admit I, I had my own little uh, nervousness about, is this going to be essentially uh, Xinhua rhetoric in English? And I'm happy to say it's, it's not. Uh, it's, it's very well done. And um, well, well, thank you. But I, I, can I mean, the way the way around it, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about how do I get around it. Yeah, right. And part of it also is not just the Communist Party problem; it's just history itself, right? I mean, mm -hmm. I one of my earliest lessons in history, I had a, I had a class in, at my university on on the nationalist period in India. So you know, Gandhi and Nehru and these guys, and you know, the professor purposely gave us books about the exact same period of history written by three different people at different times. And, it, and, and often it was hard to tell they were writing about the same thing. I mean, yeah. it, their, their, their analysis of the events and the, what was and what wasn't important, their, their characterization of the people, and it's just like, wait a second, you know, this, this isn't the same decade, is it? I mean, it's just so, so certainly said you have this problem, you know, generally. So, I mean, what I, what I attempted to do was use you know contemporary sources, which I use it you know loosely. In some cases, the most contemporary sources were, you know, a couple of years <laughs> later after the events, but yes. especially in the early period. But because you have such a tremendous amount of, of writing from Chinese history that the Chinese were writing at the time, you can almost get kind of a feel for how Chinese were interpreting their own events as they were going on, or at least something close to or generally close to it and then of course how those historians were writing about their period had tremendous influence on what later historians were writing as well so i tried to a certain extent to get the chinese view in something like real time uh or as close to it as you could get and that's when you see some of these ideas like this idea of chinese exceptionalism you know this this was coming up dynasty after dynasty after dynasty in more or less the same form uh, and that filtered into how China dealt with the outside world. I mean, that was the whole idea of the Chinese emperor, as you said, you know, being the, the son of heaven and therefore being above other, other rulers. Uh, you know, this had 
and a direct influence on how how the Chinese dealt with other with other people for a, you know a large part of its history. Absolutely. So in the modern age, then. You also pointed out that even though significant elements of that Chinese exceptionalism, you you said it was, still exist in sort of the political mindset of the current iteration of China, you know, it lives in a markedly different world than it once did. And so can that ideology of being the superior civilization, of feeling that one deserves to be at the top of the world stage... Can it coexist? Does it have to adapt on a global playing field where I I would say it's probably likely to be a multipolar world (laughs) rather than China on top? Well, that's a real, that's a real question. I mean, that is, that's the heart of, of the question facing China right now, because the world, you know, the West remade the world, right? And societies like you know korea vietnam and and elsewhere in east asia that were originally very 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 close to china and and were basically you know synthesized right that's that they were basically they had borrowed a tremendous amount from chinese civilization where it was their from their you know writing script to their education system uh to uh legal codes artistic styles everything right so you had a China that had almost like a Chinese world. I mean, what, what makes East Asia East Asia? To a great degree, it's the influence of Chinese civilization mm-hmm. that makes it kind of a distinct region from the rest of the world. And that was always true. So through all the kind of ups and downs of the dynasties, that civilizational influence was was kind of always there, but that's not true anymore uh, because you know we were talking about earlier how China was a for for a century was a people in war with their own history, right? So now all these societies around Asia that used to look to China don't really look to China so much anymore. They like doing business with China; and they're happy to have good relations with China. But you know their kids want to go to Harvard, and uh, their their governments are in many cases democratic or even country, even countries that aren't like Vietnam are increasingly looking to relations with the West. So they're, the Chinese entire world has has changed uh, in the last 100, 150 years in, in a way that it, it hadn't in the past. And I think that presents very different challenges to them. You know, you have a country like, uh, you know, Korea, where the, the dynasties, they weren't always, but for long stretches of time, they were some of the more you know loyal partners of the Chinese dynasties. Yeah. Um, now you know being basically having a, a defense alliance with the United States and and being you know very very at least South Korea, uh, you know be, being very very U.S. looking um, and and uh, so I think this is the challenge. These 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 societies now look on China somewhat nervously. And I don't see them running to embrace Chinese civilization anytime soon. Uh, so in that sense, uh, China has its work cut out for. I mean, it, it is it is already a major economic force, obviously, and it's becoming more and more of a military power. It's expanding its diplomatic influence. Uh, but, you know, the, it still has work to go to rebuild the foundations of, it, of its power. And that that civilizational influence was always kind of the base 
of Chinese power through all of this. And that, that one is that one's really struggling. And they're trying to kind of reclaim it. They, 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 the Congress government doesn't do a particularly good job of that, um, actually. So I, so this is where, you know, you get into these open questions. Basically, yeah, China wants what it always had, but is that can it achieve that and is that mm-hmm. even possible? And as you say, that's still an open question. <laughs> I guess we'll see. <laughs> I'd love to predict the future based on the past, but look, I, I think you can make the case. Let's let's do that. Let's let's look at Chinese history as to what what's going to go forward. I mean, if you believe in this, you know, romance of the three kingdoms, you know, uh, cycle of, of of Chinese history, um, uh, you know, divided China is now uniting, and this means that they're China is again destined to be a great power. But you know, China also has a tremendous number of false starts. Like, as you mentioned, there was the, the, the Qin that lasted a mere 15 years, right? right. Uh, there was the, the Sui dynasty, that uh, the precursor to the Tang, that lasted only two emperors, but looked tremendously powerful at the time. That's the dynasty that built the Grand Canal. So maybe China is destined to be a great power again, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be under the current group of people running the country. That's a very interesting point. It's still it's still early days as far as any new regime goes in the grand course of Chinese history. Seven, Seventy years is not altogether that long in the grand sweep of things. No, and and, and also when when you look at it, I mean, their period of kind of greater influence is much 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 shorter than that, right? Yeah, I mean, this was this was still a relatively, you know, my 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 first time in in China was nineteen ninety six, and I, I was just here as a tourist, basically. And, you know, it's almost 25 years ago, but there were hardly any cars on the road in 1996. You know, this was the real beginnings of China's, still the beginnings of China's opening to the world and, and move towards wells. It was still a relatively poor place. So when you look at it that way, it's actually it's actually been a very short period of time. Yeah. And so I guess we will have to see. So before I let you go... I've got just a couple more questions and more, I guess, just flippant than these, these last ones have been. Um, but in your time in China, what's the favorite place that you've been to or, or visited? And what's your favorite type of food here? Favorite place? I, well, in terms of just kind of like cities uh, and kind of city life, I'm actually, I'm actually a bit of a Hangzhou fan myself. Hangzhou? Okay. Um, I generally like that part of East China, that Hangzhou, Nanjing, that Suzhou, that whole area, uh, closer to you than to me. Um, I think these cities are very, are really, really interesting. Very old, obviously, and very interesting cities. Yes. Uh, and it's actually, I find, to be one of the, perhaps the friendliest part of China as well. I, I find people, I think because of their history, that I find them to be quite open in, in that part of the world. Um I mean, in terms of sites, I mean, though, I mean, I mean, God, there's so much, but I'm uh, getting off the beaten track of the obvious sites to see. I don't know if you've ever been out to Dunhuang to see the the Buddhist uh, the Buddhist cave temples there, but oh, yeah. uh, it's it's because it's kind of between nowhere and nowhere, right? So you really have to make a trip. Uh, but it's 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 well worth it if you want to get on a plane. And and when I was there a long time ago, I was there twenty years ago, almost twenty years ago. It was a bit of a trek. It's become a lot easier. In terms of food, I'm going to have to go with something a bit of a stereotype. 
I'll apologize to every, everyone in, in advance. Uh, but I actually love I actually love the roast duck here in, in uh, Beijing. So there's nothing wrong with Beijing duck. You don't have to apologize. Oh no, because it, it's one of those. I actually don't like duck. That's why I bring this up. Like I'll never I'll never order duck. And you know when I when I got here to Beijing, it's a thing to do, right? You have guests in town, you want to bring them for you know your your Peking duck, and it's one of those things. It's kind of like uh, I'm from New York, so it's kind of like why can't you get a good bagel outside of New York? Uh, I, you're going to get hate mail on that one. People are going to say yes, you can. No, no, no. Actually, you can't get a good bagel outside of New York. Um, I'll redirect, get a, I'll redirect them to your good, <laughs> You. You can't get you can't get a really good cheesesteak out of Philadelphia. I went to college in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and you whatever around the world they call a Philly cheesesteak, it's not a Philly cheesesteak. <laughs> you have to go to Philly to get the Philly. Te- I don't know why it's bread with some chopped up meat on it. I don't know what it is, but it's different in Philly. Right. It's very similar on a much more gourmet level with uh peking duck where it's it's, it's kind of like even other parts of china don't do it the way they, they do it here right right no that's a that's a solid answer and a solid defense of that answer well michael thank you so much for your time and for for coming thank on. you is there any plugs you'd like to make um in terms of the way people can be able to get in touch with you or anything like that uh well look if, if people uh want to reach me the uh the easiest way is to, is to send me something on on twitter which is the, the fastest my handle is at michael schumann so it's pretty easy mm-hmm. uh, and i look i'm happy to uh if people do read the book um and uh they want to interact and they have questions they want to talk about stuff i'm i'm open to having these dialogues with people uh in whatever you know so i look forward to it awesome uh, so one more time, that is Superpower Interrupted, The Chinese History of the World by Michael Schumann, coming out on, says, June 9th of 2020. All right. Yep. So get it in any way, shape, and form you can. <laughs> Thanks a lot again, Michael. Hey, Chris, I really pre- appreciate you inviting me on and the time. It was a really interesting talk. Thank you. Once again, big thanks to Michael Schumann for coming on and chatting with me. You can find him on Twitter at the handle at Michael Schumann. And his upcoming book, Superpower Interrupted, hits stores June 9th. You can pre-order it on Amazon and other booksellers right now. Next time, we're back to our regularly scheduled Late Yuan Breakdown under the tenure of its final Emperor Khan, Hogan Temur. Thanks for listening. <laughs>